be working uh, from the end of Hebrews 1 into Hebrews 2. We've uh, been a couple of weeks out, and uh, we begin in, in this message with several messages. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 verses, or Hebrews really 2, 1 through 4. We, we will have chapter 1 verse 14 for context, but Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 uh, for um, several messages. We'll have one next week, then we'll have a break for Christmas, and then we'll have um, perhaps as many as four more on the tail end as we talk through several things. Uh, this week, angels and the law. Next week, we're going to cover the context itself with this idea of giving the more earnest heed. Uh, and then after that, we're going to speak from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 about this idea of signs and wonders, diverse miracles, gifts of the Holy Ghost. And it's been quite some time since I've done a message uh, dedicated to signs and wonders, dedicated to the sign gifts and such. And so we're going to spend, uh, in, in fact, three sermons uh, laying the foundation and building upon that foundation uh, a thought process as it relates to uh, signs and wonders and the modern church. And then uh, we'll see, there may be one more message coming at the tail end of that. I don't know quite yet where I'm going to place that one, if it's here or a little bit later. But uh, we are going to be here for a little bit of time, uh, simply by virtue of how much is here. These verses have a very rich and powerful message which needs to be heard loud and clear in our day. And before we can glean the full effectiveness of that message, which is what we'll kind of try to focus on next week, I need to lay a little bit of, of context. I need to lay a bit of a foundation. And so today we're going to explore, and we talked about this a little bit on a Tuesday night, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, the unique and mysterious relationship in the Bible between angels and the law. It will perhaps in some ways not be the most satisfying of studies, uh, simply because the Bible doesn't have too much to say about it. Say, well, pastor, if the Bible doesn't have too much to say about it, why would you, why would you dedicate a sermon to it? Well, because the places where we do find it, especially in the New Testament, it, it is, we, we find that it, it has a prominent role in those passages. There's three of them. And in each of those passages, not only does it have a prominent role, but the writer or speaker, Stephen, and then Paul, seems to almost take for granted that this is known, understood. And this is an interesting thing, because we don't have very much insight. As a matter of fact, if I just read my Old Testament Bible, and I don't have these three New Testament passages, and I don't go to Jewish traditions, I'm not really going to glean this at all. So how is it that something that I can't even necessarily glean at all from simply a, a reading of the Old Testament can be so stated so explicitly and matter-of-factly in the New Testament, implicitly in, in, in a sense, and does this relationship matter between angels and the law in a way that, that might help us or alter our perspective or, 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 or uh, increase our understanding of, of some other doctrines or principles? And so we, we have this somewhat important study, in a sense, if we're going to understand uh, the nature of certain New Testament elements, and, and in, in, including this passage here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And what I'm going to do at first is I'm going to lead you through, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit on what I would think through as I'm seeking to study and interpret a passage of Scripture. So I'm going to lead you through my thought process 
walk you through what I would think and then say, well, what about this? And then maybe about that and then how about this? And, and help you understand a little bit of, of how it is that we would derive our understanding of this passage as I would preach it to you. And then from there, we'll talk a little bit more about the history of this concept of angels and the law. So let's begin with reading uh, five verses, verse 14 of chapter 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2. The Bible says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Speaking of angels. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So what I'm going to invite you to do here is to follow along a thought process with me as we think about these passages, how I would approach trying to interpret these passages as I read them. So remember in chapter 1, Paul began by speaking about how the Father spoke in times past by the prophets, but now has spoken unto the fathers by the prophets, now has spoken by his son. And at this point, my expectation is that Paul is engaging in an argument as to why the revelation of the son is superior to the revelation of the prophets, right? Yeah, that God spoke in times past in one way, now he's speaking in another way. He spoke through the prophets, now he has spoken definitively through his son. So my thought process is, yes, God is painting a contrast. The, more the message of the prophets, the message of the Son, and that is going to be the point. But then I get to verse 4, and that's not very far along, right? And when I get to verse 4, Paul all of a sudden shifts to comparing the... Um, comparing prophetic revelation to sonship revelation, he, he shifts from that to comparing angels to the Son, right? And I say, now wait a minute, this is not what I expect. This subverts my expectations. At this point, I have a decision to make, an interpretation, between two options. Either Paul just made a, a quick and simple point about revelation. God spoke before this way. God's speaking this way. Now let's talk about how, God, how, how the Son is better than the angels. Or I have to reorient my thinking on Paul's intent and say, okay, 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 Paul really was talking about, he really was comparing prophetic revelation to the revelation of his son. But he was also talking about the superiority of, of Christ to the prophets, so then I can um, assume that this little bit on the angels is a bit of an interlude. And maybe he'll get back to the, the, the rest of that element of revelation later. And as I think through those, the one where Paul is going to stay focused on Revelation doesn't seem to be as likely because he spends so many more verses talking about the Son's superiority to the angels until I get to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Paul combines his argument about Revelation itself, beginning with an exhortation to why we ought to listen carefully. Wait a minute, we're back on Revelation now. We're back on the way that God has spoken. God has spoken through his Son, and now we're back talking about this well, then what was that angel bit? Was that just the interlude? Was that just a parenthetical? Well, what a strange parenthetical. 
right? What a strange parenthesis between Paul speaking about the Son and, and the prophets and Revelation and, and, the, the, and God speaking through the, the Son now, and then speaking about giving the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, specifically because the message of the Son is superior to the message of the prophets. What was this angel bit then, and what good does it serve for Paul to put it there? And at this point, I say, okay, so now we're back upon the superiority of the son's revelation to the prophet's revelation. Maybe this angel thing was just an aside. But I can't think that for too long. Because in verse 2, Paul doesn't then contrast the revelation of the son to the revelation of the prophets, right? Okay, Paul's back on track now. Maybe he got a little distracted. Uh, preachers do that sometimes, right? They get, a little, they get, they get off a little bit. They, they go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Okay, so he did a little rabbit trail. And now he's going to get talking about the, the contrast between prophetic revelation and the revelation of the Son, except he doesn't. He starts talking about the contrast between the revelation of the Son and the revelation of angels, that which was spoken by angels. And I ask, what revelation from angels? <laughs> What is he talking about? Paul hasn't talked about the revelation from angels. He talked about the revelation from the prophets. And then he talked about the character of the angels, right? The revelation of the prophets and then the substance of angels versus the Son. The superiority of the Son to the ministry and to the position of the angels. And this gets me thinking next. Well, wait a minute. I happen to know Greek. And the word angel in the Bible, angelos, it literally means messenger, right? Messenger. So maybe it doesn't reference spiritual beings here. Maybe it references human messengers. Maybe he never actually got off the, 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 the topic of the prophets. Maybe the King James translators just did something a little wonky. They added angel when it should have just been messenger. And we have seen a few places in the Bible, perhaps, where the word Angelos might reference ministers or evangelists, humans, rather than uh, spiritual beings. We think of John writing to the angels of the church of, uh, churches in, in Revelation, right? The angels to the seven churches. There are any number of people, including um, myself as I preach through that series, who would lean toward the idea that the angels to the seven churches uh, that John was writing to were, in fact, the messengers or the leaders of those churches. There are other people that, that don't take that meaning, but, but that's, that's a common interpretation. It's, uh, we also saw not too long ago in 1 Timothy 5, Paul charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels to observe certain commands, right? And there are those who speculate that this speaks not to angels in the heavenlies, but to the ordained ministers that were among them at the time there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, that is not my interpretation. I would believe Paul to be speaking spiritually there, spiritual angels. But the interpretation is certainly valid, and it's not uncommon. All of this to say that here in chapter 2, if, if we were in here, here in chapter 2 speaking of human messengers, then we would have a consistency in chapter 1, right? Where Paul speaks of the prophets and speaking through the prophets, then speaking uh, unto the Son, and then he goes on to speak about these messengers and the superior, superiority of the Son to these messengers, and we could just keep it within the context of the prophets. But of course this doesn't work. Because last time when we were studying Hebrews chapter 1 and considering the superiority of 
the son to the angels, we recognized that he was comparing the son to the ministry of ministering spirits. Did not we just read that at the, at the, the beginning of our passage here? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? That's not the prophets. Right? And as we continue to back up and we see all of these places, all of these Old Testament quotes, those Old Testament quotes are not quoting about the prophets. They are quoting about angelic beings. And so that doesn't work. And this is, I, I, I'm peeling back the way I think through this. Looking at all the angles here, right? Not angelosses, but just angles. That was the word for angel. And so I say, okay, that doesn't work either. So then I'm left to wonder, why does Paul give an exhortation to give extra regard to the revelation of the Son above, at the beginning of chapter 1, the prophets, and at the beginning of chapter 2, the angels, while in the between seeming to go in a different direction? And then, of course, the short answer is Paul doesn't. Paul was speaking about angels in chapter 1, not deviating from the idea of the Son being superior in Revelation, much to the rather, he was adding to the argument so that when he gets to chapter 2, he could formulate a conclusion. And we know this from chapter 2, verse 2. Paul, in this verse, connects angels directly to Revelation. So Paul says that the sons, uh, that God spoke in times past through the prophets, and there's no question that the son is greater than the prophets because the prophets are pretty flawed guys, right? Moses was a pretty flawed guy. Elijah was a pretty flawed guy. Uh, we, we don't necessarily see all the flaws of all the, the prophets, uh, but we know that they were flawed human beings. We talked about that. Jesus was a human being that was not flawed. And so he's clearly superior. But then we up the ante. Okay, so the Jew would say, sure, the son might be superior to the prophets, but is the son superior to the law? And so Paul begins a treatise bringing about this conclusion about the law by first showing from the Old Testament the son's natural superiority not just to humanity, but to the angels. And that foundation lays a foundation for us to understand something, not about the angels themselves, but about the law of Moses. And the question is, what word? I kind of just gave you the answer, but what word? What is this revelation of angels of which Paul speaks? We're going to answer it this evening. And this will give us the foundation necessary to appreciate the exhortation we get in verses 1 and verses 3. Verses 1 and 3. There we go. Let's try that. And once again, as we explore this, it's important to remember who Paul is writing to. When Paul speaks in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, about the words spoken by angels, it's obvious by his lack of explanation that he expected everybody who read it in the natural sense, in the immediate sense, to understand what he was saying. So what is he saying, Pastor, right? What is he saying? Well, let me tell you what Paul is doing here. I'm going to tell you what he's doing, and then I'm going to back up and I'm going to defend it with Scripture, okay? When Paul speaks of the words spoken by angels, he is speaking about the Old Testament law. 
to this end. There is no change in argument between chapters 1 and 2. Paul set out in chapter 1 to speak of the superiority of the revelation of the Son to the superiority of the revelation, not just of the prophets, but of the law and the prophets, of the Old Testament revelation. The prophets spake in times past unto the fathers. The fathers received the law by the word of angels. Thus the message of the Son is superior to the message of the law and the prophets because the Son is greater than them both. And thus his revelation is greater than them both. Now we know this is not Paul attempting to cast off the law and the prophets. Paul says any number of times in the book of Romans, Jesus says himself, he said, I have not come to destroy the law, I have come to fulfill the law. Paul says that the law is holy and right and is good. The law is not bad or evil. The problem is that we can't keep it, right? And so Jesus came with a greater revelation. Jesus came, came with a more sure revelation. Jesus came with, with a revelation that is, is reflective of his character. That in the same way that his character is greater than the angels and that of the prophets, so too his revelation is as well. And so that's what we're going to consider this evening. The message of the Son is superior to the law and the prophets. This is Paul's argument. Now, that I've given you the argument... Let's substantiate it. And I want to begin by walking through what the New Testament has to say, those three passages. Well, two. We've already covered this one, so we won't cover Hebrews, but we'll cover the other two. And then after that, we'll go to the Old Testament and kind of put some pieces together. So there are two passages in, uh, of Scripture in the New Testament other than this one where angelic beings are said to have uh, are, are spoken of in relation to the law. And those two significantly closer, they, they both directly connect angelic beings to the law. And the first instance is by the mouth of the deacon, Stephen. Stephen is giving his spirit-inspired message of the history of Israel and their rejection of the revelation of God. A wonderful, wonderful treatise, a wonderful sermon there. Uh, and uh, Stephen is standing before uh, many people, and he's giving this sermon. And um, he begins with Abraham, and he walks through the history of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph and of Moses and the Exodus and then of David and Solomon. And following his brief synopsis of the history of Israel and of their rejection of the prophets, he shows to them this continual rejection of revelation. He says this in Acts 17, 51 through, or excuse me, Acts 7, 51 through 53. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So Stephen states that the nation received the law by the disposition of angels. That word meaning ministration or arrangement, that the angels, that, that angels ministered or arranged the law and they received it by the arrangement or the ministration of these angels. And as Stephen presents it, this is a sign of its gravity, that it wasn't just Moses who gave the law. It wasn't just some random guy who had shown some signs and some wonders. And if you think back, we'll, we'll read a little bit about it. Uh, that was a, a fearful time, was it not? The, the fire of God burning on the mountain, the earth shaking, the, 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 the voices, the sound of a trumpet speaking the law. It, this was a time of fear. This was a time of terror. 
And Stephen is emphasizing that idea that it wasn't just uh, one guy getting up there chiseling into a rock a, a few things from his head. This was a spiritual experience. This was a ministration of angels voiced by angelic beings. And so carries the weight, not just of the words of men, but literally of the words of God. So Paul would say a very similar thing in Galatians chapter 3. Here Paul is speaking to the inability of the law of Moses to supersede the law of faith that we see exemplified in the interaction between Abraham and God. So Paul goes to the, uh, the example of Abraham that Abraham believed God and that was counted unto him for righteousness. And it would not be for 430 more years that the law would be brought into effect. And he says that the law, which came in 430 years later, cannot disannul the promise that God gave to Abraham by grace. Abraham did not have to work for it, earn it, be worthy of it, or anything of the sort. God gave him that promise by grace and Abraham received it through faith. By grace, he was saved through faith. By grace, he was justified through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The law could not disannul that. The law cannot override what God had established 430 years earlier. And if this is the case, then Paul asks, what good is the law? In Galatians chapter 3, 19. So we read verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So Paul says that the angels ordained or appointed or arranged the law in the hand of a mediator. We would believe this mediator would be Moses, right? He was the mediator. The, he, between God and man is a type of Christ who would be the, the eventual mediator of, between God and man. God promising that there would be another prophet that would arise like unto Moses, and he would speak the words of God, and they would listen to him, and they would hear the words of God through his voice. So Moses is that mediator, but it says that the angels ordained the law in the hand of this mediator. Thus we find from New Testament evidence that angels were instrumental in the distributing or the enacting of the law of Moses. And this is interesting, that God credits to himself the disposition of the promises of Abraham and the covenant of grace. Right? God says, I, got, I, I entered into that with Abraham. And he also credits to himself the disposition of the promises of to the world in Christ by grace. But the covenant of the law, cold and harsh and full of fiery indignation, he meted out, not directly himself it seems, but by the hands of angelic mediators. Now there's a train of thought there that I can't prove, so I'm not going to take you down it this evening. But it certainly, got the, uh, it certainly added some coal to a train in my head. And it started moving down that tr those tracks. And there's a really neat implication to it, which you can ask me perhaps sometime when we're just uh, jawing back and forth. But I don't know that I'm ready to, uh, to speak it to the world. And this leads us to the Old Testament. We find in the account of the exodus of Israel from Egypt significant involvement of angelic beings. A portion of this involvement we attribute to the angel of the Lord, which in many cases we know to be the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. 
We know this be, uh, because when, when we go to these various passages, we find times throughout the Old Testament where this angel, called the angel of the Lord, appears, and when he does so, humans begin to worship him, and he accepts this worship. And what we also find at various other times in the Bible is angels appearing to men, and when men fall down to worship them, the angel forbids them and says, don't worship me, I'm a servant just like you are, worship God, right? So we know that angels refuse worship themselves because they are created beings, they are servants of the true and living God, they do not have the right to be worshipped. So then when we do see an angel that is worshipped, and he accepts that worship willingly and gladly, we have to understand that this is God, that this angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. And as we consider the three persons of the divine trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, there's only one of those that we have ever seen functionally interact with human beings in a material way, and that is the Son. And, of course, there's a point where the Son takes on flesh, but prior to that, uh, of course, spirit beings can still take on form. And we would have every persuasion that the second person of the Trinity, prior to his incarnation, prior to when he's called Jesus, prior to when he is born of a woman, is yet interacting with man in a physical, tangible way through various animate or inanimate objects as it relates to interaction with the Old Testament saints. So when we see the angel of the Lord appear and accept worship, such as in the days of Gideon, right? An angel appears to Gideon. Gideon uh, um, worships him, and he accepts it. Samson's parents. Manoah worships the angel that came to them, and he accepted it. As a matter of fact, ascended in the smoke from the altar, from, from a meal offering. Joshua, when the captain of the Lord's host stands before him, and he says, take off thy shoes, for you're on holy ground, we know that these are appearances of God himself, namely the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Oftentimes, these men and women acknowledge them to, uh, within themselves that they have interacted with Jehovah. Manoah was so thrilled when, <laughs> when the angel left, and he says, we interacted with God and we didn't die, right? They were, he, he, he was delighted that, that, that he interacted with God himself and he didn't die. So we, we see these certain times where these men or women acknowledge that they interacted with Jehovah. And we see such an instance at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, we read this. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, that would be Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of thy people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So verse 2 explicitly says that this is the angel of the Lord, right? 
And then as we continue reading, he's called both the Lord, that's capital O, capital O, capital, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember in our King James Bibles, every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the word Jehovah. It is the covenant name of the God of Israel. When you see capital G, lowercase O-D, that's simply the word Elohim. That can mean any number of different gods. It can mean the God of Balaam. It can mean, can mean Molech. It can mean uh, false gods. It can mean the true God. It can mean any number of things, but it is a word for God. God calls himself Elohim, and others call him Elohim. And so we see these various times. Uh, we also see the word Adonai come up, right? And that is Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And then there are times where you'll see Lord God, and it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, capital G, capital O, capital D. That's Adonai, Jehovah. And since Lord is already taken, you can't go Lord, Lord, right? So you go Lord, capital G-O-D, God. Very consistent in our King James Bibles, if that made any sense. Um, so take a look at that, look for that, and remember that. So we see here the Lord, in, in, in our last um, slide here, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush. And then he, he, he quite literally introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know who this is, right? This is Jehovah. There's no questioning this. The angel accepts worship. As a matter of fact, he doesn't just accept worship, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. He demands worship. He calls himself the Lord. The place which Moses stood was made holy by his presence, and in this case we know that this is God. We also know that the pillar of cloud was a manifestation of the angel of God and the Lord himself. We read in Exodus 13 and 14, Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. And then chapter 14, verse 19. And the angel of God, which went before the camp out of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. So we find in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, the Bible says that the Lord, capital L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital V, went before them, went in front of them in a pillar of cloud. And then we see this same pillar of cloud called the angel of God and moves behind them. And that would be uh, to mask their flight um, through the Red Sea. Now, this example is not as clear. I could, I could actually argue against what I just said. Right? The Lord went before them, just speaking of the Lord's representative going before them. And so the angel of God is not necessarily the Lord himself, but some other angel. And that would be fine, too, if you want to interpret it that way. This one's not as clear as the burning bush. And by all means, um, feel free to do so. Um, I'm not going to argue with you over that. Uh, I, I think that that's a perfectly valid interpretation. Now, the next instance where an angel is involved is an interesting one. Exodus 23. And in Exodus 23, we read this in verses 20 through 23. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, 
then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee into, unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Now, what is so interesting about this, our King James translators capitalize, if you notice there in verse 23, capitalize the word angel, which means they perceive this to be God. They either capitalize proper names, or as this is not a proper name, they're capitalizing it because they interpret it as God. But I'm not so sure. As a matter of fact, this, uh, this passage might even lend more credence to the idea that the angel of God in the pillar of cloud was not necessarily Jehovah. And the reason why I'm not so sure is because of Hebrews 2. Because we read in Hebrews 2 about this idea that the angel spoke to the fathers, that there was revelation by angels. And then we connect that to, of course, the book of Acts and Galatians, and we find that this was the law. And Exodus 23 comes right after God gave the law, right? Which Paul says, Stephen, and Paul and Stephen tell us, was given into the hand of the mediator Moses by the disposition of angels calls in Hebrews 2 2 the word spoken by angels. Now consider the character and contrast of the angel described here in Exodus 23. Notice that the character of this angel is absolute. Like the law itself, the angel here is without mercy. He will not pardon your transgressions. Now here's the interesting thing. We've already seen leading up to this time, and we will certainly see it as the, as the, the, throughout Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we will see God pardon Israel how many times? Let's use a technical term, bunches of times. So many times, right? God pardons Israel time after time, but this angel, he will not pardon your transgressions. Doesn't that sound like the law? Isn't that how Paul describes the law? That the law was cold, that the law was definitive, that the law was firm, that the law was, was, was merciless in that sense. It was, it was cold, hard justice. Do this, I'll bless you. Don't do this, I will curse you. That is the law. And so we see this angel that is re reflective of absolute justice. And God warns thus, do not provoke this guy. He will not pardon your transgressions. Notice also God contrasts, saying, If thou shalt obey his voice and do all that I speak. Notice that God speaks of his in contrast to himself. Obey his voice and do all that I shall speak. So God is speaking. The, the name of God is in this angel. And the angel is speaking. He's representing God. But it is this angel that is speaking directly with the people at this point, and not necessarily God himself. And all of this leads to Deuteronomy 33, where Moses reviews the events of the nation of Israel from Egypt unto the cusp of the promised land. And as he reviewed the giving of the law, notice how Moses describes the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran 
And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. So not only were present, angels present at Sinai, but ten thousands of angels were present at the disposition of this fiery law. Okay, so angels were there, right? And not only were angels there, but following the law, God seemed to have delegated, implicitly delegated, some measure of leading, of protection, of judgment, and of clearing out of the enemies of, of Israel upon some angel that would go before them. Whether we want to see this as the same angel that was in the cloud, the angel of God, and that was just the cloud that would continue to lead them uh, up until the promised land, and then when they rejected it for the next 40 years until uh, all of that generation died off. I'm, I'm fine, like I said, I'm fine with that. I don't have a problem with that. Um, we can see it one way or the other, and, and I'm not concerned either way. But that brings us back to Hebrews. This is what we find. From Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is making a single argument. And this argument is not specifically about the superiority of the Son to the person and ministry of the prophets, or to the person and ministry of the angels, both being created beings and so obviously inferior to their creator, but much more importantly, and especially in a Jewish context, Paul is arguing for the superiority of the revelation of the Son to the revelation of the law, administered by angels, right? And we, again, we don't have, I, I, I don't know if all that I just talked you through was satisfying enough. Well, but what did they do? You know, what did those angels do? I, don't, I, I can't tell you. The Bible, I'll keep searching, but I haven't found any more yet. And I'm not going to start making it up, okay? So that's all I can give you on that. But... It's not necessary. There's enough there for us to get the point, which is that the angels were connected to the law. And then when we get to Hebrews chapter 2, we can see then that what Paul is arguing is not about the prophets and the angels, but about the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets. These revelations are not evil or wrong or bad or anything like that. We know this is true. I've said it already. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I think not that I am come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus came not in contradiction to the law and the prophets, but as the fullest realization of the demands of their promises. But all the more so where the law and the prophets failed, where they fell short, not through flaws in the law and the prophets itself, but through the fundamental flaws of mankind, the inability of man to keep it, Jesus' revelation of grace and truth came as an abundantly superior revelation in every way. And so we read in John 1, verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This is that contrast. The law was given by Moses, by the disposition of angels in the hands of a mediator. But Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. He came with grace. Not just is he greater than angels in, in, in character and in person by virtue of the fact that he is their creator, but his revelation is superior. And again in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of what it means that the law was given by the dispensation of angels. This is something which bears some level of mystery. And as God has been pleased to give us only a glimmer of this reality, so too we can rest assured that God has given us everything sufficient for us to know what we need to know. Right? God didn't forget, oh man, I forgot to add those verses on angels and the law. God didn't do that. Right? Moses didn't have a lapse and all of a sudden forget to add a, a chapter to the Bible as it relates to these things. God gave us what we, he wanted us to have. We can trust that, the inspired, preserved word of God. And so what we have is what we need. And what we don't have, it's our privilege to leave with the Lord. But the reason why we needed to start with this idea is because next week we're going to consider the essence of Paul's exhortation. And this exhortation is rooted in a comparison. Not actually a comparison of Jesus to angels and prophets as men and of, as created beings, but a comparison between the revelation of Jesus to the revelation of the law and the prophets. And only when we understand this contrast will we properly understand the exhortation that Paul is going to be given us. So for this week, other than a bunch of facts and interesting questions, what do I get to send you away with? Can I send you away with a sense of blessedness? There's another passage in our New Testament scriptures which speaks both to the nature of prophets and of angels. And that passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Speaking of salvation through Jesus Christ, of which our age and our generation are unique and particular beneficiaries. So Peter writes in regard to this salvation, verses 10 through 12 in 1 Peter 1, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Peter says that the prophets wrote of the blessedness of the days of Messiah. And as they did so, as well as they knew God, as well as they understood these things, as much as they loved him, they had no idea what they were writing. They could not comprehend this grace, the suffering of Messiah and the grace that would be brought in through it. They couldn't understand it. They wrote it and they said, God, what am I writing? And God said, it's not for you to know. Just write the words. They did not understand the manner of time the Spirit testified regarding the sufferings of Christ and the glory that this would usher into the world. A glory which you and I live under every day. A glory which is implicit to we who are in Christ. They could not comprehend it. They had no reference point to understand it. Now it was foreign to the prophets whose message was grand and glorious and yet paled in comparison to what they saw on the horizon. Paled in comparison to the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. But it was not just they who struggled with this idea, with this grace, with this redemption, with this, this, this um, suffering. 
Notice also, the angels themselves, as they have watched redemption unfold, look on with admiration and curiosity. The word spoken by angels was steadfast. So that every transgression, right? Every, how does he say it? Words spoken by angels were steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. It seems as though the angels can comprehend justice, action, and consequence. That angel that was to follow them, listen to him, because the only thing he gets is, is, is judgment, right? If you transgress him, he's going to nail you to the wall. That's what, that's what was warned in Exodus 23. Listen to this, this angel. Don't provoke him because he will levy those transgressions against you. This is what it appears angels understand. They understand justice. But it seems as though they don't really comprehend grace. Now, not that they can't know it, but they don't have a reference point of experience. The word spoken by angels was steadfast. The word spoken by the prophets was glorious. But we live and breathe under the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And that is blessedness, Christian. This puts you among some of the most blessed men and women who have ever walked the face of the earth. Do you realize that? And next week, we'll contemplate the great responsibility that comes with this blessing. But for this week, let us rather simply rest in the tremendous privilege and blessing which this relationship affords to us. That as man has received Jesus, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. Now, that is not a trite statement. You were given power, authority, the right. You were made by adoption a son of the living God, a child of the living God. Prophets couldn't understand that. Angels don't get this grace thing. But we experience it every day. You hath he quickened. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, that angel that, that led them in the way, says, do not provoke him, for he will not pardon you. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, even when we were trespassing, even when we had provoked him, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And that puts us into a place of great blessedness. And it is that blessedness that I want to leave you with this evening. It's the blessedness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died on the cross 
uh, died for our sins, excuse me, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That blessedness, that when we receive it, we become the sons of God, even to we who have believed on his name. And may that blessedness carry us into this week, seeing the contrast, not just between the law and the prophets and the, and the revelation of Christ, but between the recognition of this cold, needed-out justice and the translation into the grace of God through Jesus Christ poured out on us by God's great love. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.